Hello and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is Season 5, Episode 19, Drawn by the Sun. Last week on the History of India podcast, we met a young man called Bhoja, and he became king of the Pratiharas. He was joining a dynasty that already had its story play out, already had its rise and fall, starting in the deserts in the west of India, raising themselves up to the very edge of empire before crashing down. So that when Bhoja inherited the throne, all he was inheriting was a small and weak kingdom. Boja boldly attacked the enemies of the dynasty just as if he was one of his forefathers with much more power. Inevitably, perhaps, Boja failed. The enemies of his dynasty drove him away, like darkness of night drives out the sun, as his enemies put it. Boja means sun, so this is another of those devastating Sanskrit pun roasts. This week, Bhoja will build a network of support, subordinate kings, gathering them around him, and then he'll spot an opportunity. And before the episode is over, he'll have his victory over the enemies of his dynasty. Ready? Let's go. We're in the land they called Medapata. It's West India. And there are Dry hills which sort of tumble down from a plateau, falling away to the south. And on the grassy slopes, rocks and, and dust peep through. It's about 646 AD. And this land, this relatively small parcel of land, is ruled by a king called Shiladitya. It means virtue of the sun. Actually, he didn't rule all of this area, even all of this smallish land, not yet. And actually, he's technically not the ruler, not the supreme ruler anyway. He's got a boss just like you and me, a superior king who he serves. But Shiladitya is powerful, more powerful than his forefathers who ruled this land before him. He rules from a city called Nagda. Nugta means, uh, by the way, it means uh, uh, cremation of the snake, which is a pretty cool name, pretty badass sounding, until you realise that this whole area used to be ruled by the Nugga people, the snake people. And you start to wonder where cremation of the snake got its name from. But nowadays, under Shiladitya, there's peace. And the land that he's in charge of is doing well. Merchants are feeling comfortable secure enough to set out on bold endeavours, to start building mines or moving towns, to start paying for temples to be constructed. So, it's not surprising perhaps that this is the moment when Shiladitya and his dynasty step onto the pages of history. Not that he was the first to rule. As we said, his forefathers were kings here before him. But he was the first man, it seems of real significance. The moon of his family, as one of the inscriptions of the time puts it. But even taking that into account, he was still a minor king on the stage of North India. And you get that sense when you read the inscriptions about him. He knew it. They give him 
compliments like all inscriptions do, but they're the sort of vanilla compliments that you only give to minor kings, not the sort of thing emperors get. He's called the conqueror of enemies, though no actual enemies are listed. He's called the rejoicer of Brahmanas. And that's pretty much it. That's pretty much as much of the story of Shiladitya as we can be really confident of. It's what the sources of the time vouch for. But since then, a lot more has been added to the story of Shiladitya and his dynasty. Over time, Shiladitya's economic accomplishments were magnified, so that by the 13th century it was said that Shiladitya's time was the very peak of commercial activity, that the, the guilds and the traders' bodies were flourishing. Never mind that in reality the kingdom was too small even to make its own gold coins, it was, according to the 13th century guys, the Wall Street of the early medieval world. It's a fairly harmless embellishment, you might think. In the modern age, the story was embellished further. It was said that Shiladitya was none other than Harsha, the great emperor of North India, who he spent almost a whole season with. I mean... Never mind that Harsha never ruled in this little land. Never mind that Harsha was never called Shiladitya in any other document. And never mind that there's not a shred of evidence in favour of the identification beyond the fact that they're two kings living at the same time. It's a fun game to play. Spot the famous. You find someone who we don't know much about, and you say that they're the same as someone we know much about. And that's the end of the game. Extra points if you can make the identification more plausible. Mostly, though, Shiladitya has been pretty much forgotten. Maybe some people in the 13th century were singing his praises, but by the 15th century, his name wasn't being sung at all, and not even by his descendants. When the kings who came after him wrote their inscriptions and they wrote their lists of their ancestors, his name wasn't there. It was replaced by the names of other men who had stories that were more exciting, more embellished, maybe. Actually, that process of writing in these greater ancestors, that, that started way back in Shiladitya's time. Shiladitya's uh, family name, his, his gotra, was Guhila. And so, naturally, it must have been founded by someone called Guhila or, or Guha. Guha is... A rather curious name. It means uh, cave. It's not actually an uncommon name. There's even a modern Indian historian with the name. So Guha, as a founder of the Guhilas, she gets mentioned as far back as Shiladitya's time. And by the time of Shiladitya's son, he was written into the list of kings as Shiladitya's great-great-grandfather. And Guha must have been a really big deal. He must have been rich and powerful because we found his coins. There are 2,000 of them and they're silver. And what's more, they're in Agra, which is about 600 kilometers away from the land that we're in now. And the coins, well, they must have been Guhas, right? Because they had his name on them. Although, come to think of it, there were a couple of other later kings called Guha. And actually, come to think of it, if you look at the picture, it's not altogether clear that the name is Guha. 
The thing we should really do is go and find one of the original 2000 silver coins and take a really close look at the name. Only, there's a problem with that. The 2000 coins were found by a colonial historian who kept them. All of them. He didn't give a single one to any museum or any treasury or any other collector. He kept all 2000 and he put them all on a ship headed back to his homeland and they were all promptly lost at sea. Anyway, we found other coins of Guha, only about nine of them, and these really do say Guha, or at least Gu at least, though they're quite different. They don't give such a grand impression. For one thing, they're not silver, they're, they're copper. I mean, a few are plated in silver, but the silver's only skin deep. Underneath is a copper core. And they're different in style too. They've, they've got a Persian fire altar on them. They're a sort of Sasanian, Iranian style of coin. That's plausible for a king, actually, in that part of India at that time. That idea, though, that Guha was Persian, that the Guhilas were foreigners, that really took off. And by the end of the Middle Ages, at the emperor's court, this is Akbar the Great, the story was that the Guhilas were descendants of a king of Persia, Nashawan the Just, for those who are into that history. It's said that the just emperor of Persia came to India with his son, but that when they were in India, his son rebelled, fighting against his father. The son lost, and he and his descendants stayed in India ever since, and they were the Guhilas. I mean, never mind that in reality this king of Persia never came to India at all, and nor did his son. This story that the Guhilas are foreigners has continued into the modern era, and some people have argued that the Guhilas were Huns, on the more reasonable grounds that the Huns actually were once in India, and that some of them had coins a little bit like the ones with the name Gu on them. It's hardly a persuasive knockdown case. Other stories came to light, though, about Guha. There's the story that he was originally a Brahmin, and that somehow he swapped his Brahmin luster with a Kshatriya. The Kshatriyas walking on the road, they were nice to each other, and they decided to swap lusters. So the Kshatriya walked away a Brahmin, and the Brahmin walked away a Kshatriya. And there's that other story that Guru's father had two wives, one Brahmin, one Kshatriya, and he was from the Kshatriya. Actually, some of these stories follow a familiar pattern, right? The two wives story that's been told about other men. In fact, these stories can get so repetitive that I can't quite recall if that two wives story was told about Guha in particular. But maybe that's the point. Modern historians have been unable to resist playing that good old game, Spot the Famous. Guha Aditya, they said, because that was his full name, was the son of the king of Vallabhi. And there really was such a man, although he wasn't called Guha or Guhila or Guha Aditya, he was called Guha Dutta, and that's pretty close. And what's more, Guha Dutta and Vallabhi, he had a son called Shila Aditya, so it's all fitting together. The historians are scoring high on the spot the famous game. But, no, wait, hang on, there are minus points. 
because I'm afraid that the Valari prince Guhadatta left us an inscription in 767 AD. And Guhadicca's great-great-grandson left us an inscription in 646 AD, which means that Guha must have ruled about a century after his great-great-grandson. Which is just details. Never mind. Enough being snide. Was Guha real? Did the founder really exist? Mm, not sure. During these couple of seasons of the podcast, there are a lot of new dynasties starting to appear, and they appear seemingly from nowhere because they're descended from maybe more obscure, more, more minor families. But the dynasties because they can't trace themselves back to some family that's been there since the beginning of time, like the Mauryas, the beginning of history at least, these new dynasties trace themselves back to a founder. And the dynasties are often named after their founder. Although, on closer inspection, it, it seems that often enough, the founders are named after the dynasties, because often enough, the founders turn out to be legendary. Maybe some forefather very distantly remembered whose deeds were much exaggerated, or maybe someone who didn't exist entirely. So was Guha just another of these legendary founders? Well, we just don't have any evidence, one way or the other. It's, it's hard to tell whether this story is embellishment all the way down, or whether there's a germ of truth to it. Even the coins are, are pretty indecisive, truth be told. And Historians remain unsure. But, in any case, there's plenty more to add to the story of the Guhilas. And the biggest addition, still somewhat famous today, was Bapa. Bapa Raul, sometimes he's called. And his was a story that really flourished. So much so that by the 15th century... Shiladich had been forgotten, and Gu had been sidelined, and Bapa was the big figure of the dynasty. And such grand stories were being told about him at that time that they were written down in a text, the Ekalinga Mahatmya. And according to this source, Bapa's father was the king, but Bapa's father was killed by the Bills, the, the local tribesfolk, still very much around today. And Bapa, the son, fled to the forest. And there, Papa stumbled across a sage, his name Hari Tarashi, but not going to be on the test. He was from the Pashupata sect of Shaivism. And he said that Papa could join the sect too, and become his disciple. And so Papa did. What else was he going to do? Papa trained himself with austerities. He studied. He was finally ready to be inducted fully into the sect and a special ceremony was set up by his teacher, where he would receive immortality. So Bapa came to the ceremonial area. Only when he came, it seemed that he had arrived too late, because his teacher had already floated up into the sky, and he was almost out of reach, almost too far away to pass on the blessings, to finish the rituals, to make Bapa immortal. Almost out of reach, but not quite. The teacher shouted down, Open your mouth! Open your mouth, I'm going to spit in it! Catch the spit in your mouth! So Bapa looked up, and he opened his mouth, and he saw the spit coming down at him, but then 
It's kind of gross, right? He thought. And he blinked, and it missed his mouth, and it landed on his feet. Papa didn't receive immortality. He only received immunity to weapons, a small part of the blessing of his teacher. But it was enough, enough to take revenge for the death of his father. The sage who later went on to found the Gurkhas gave him a sword double-edged, and he used it to cut apart those who killed his father, and he founded a kingdom. He built a temple, the Ekalinga Temple, near his teacher's hermitage, and he made his old teacher the head priest. You can still visit that temple today, although the building that stands there seems to be from a later time. It's a grand tale, and there are some things which are impossible. For example, that sage you mentioned on the way who, who gave the sword, who founded the Gurkhas, he's at least a couple of centuries after Bapa must have lived. And the story is old too, which is a bit concerning. It's written around the 15th century, so that's probably around two-thirds of a millennium after Bapa lived. And sure, it might be based on oral traditions, but even those look a little bit shaky. Because Bapa, he's just not mentioned in any of the earlier sources. There's nothing, for example, during Shiladitya's time. No inscription mention, there's not a coin, there's not a mention in any book. There's no mention of him in Shiladitya's son's time. In fact, the very first mention that we get of him is hundreds of years later, 325 years later to be exact, and that's just a few years before the start of the second millennium AD. And that would be okay, except that Bapa's supposed to be an early Guhula king, and a powerful one, and even the founder of the dynasty, according to some people later. Yet there's nary a trace of him until hundreds of years after the event. It just seems implausible. Not to be deterred, historians haven't missed out on the chance to play Find the Famous with Bapa. They've assumed that Bapa is a nickname, and that's plausible enough, like Bapa just means father. So historians have guessed that the real Bapa must be one of the kings of the dynasty who somehow earned the nickname later on. Maybe he was Shiladitya, our first king. Maybe he was Guha, the legendary founder. Maybe he was another later king. They... The suggestion is that that fits some of the dates better. Frankly, though, none of these games of Find the Famous are played exceptionally well. The evidence is just too flimsy to rest much on. Stuff like being roughly the same date or having similar words of praise said about them. Bapa was called the moon of the family, just like Shiladitya. It's not a convincing case that they're the same person. Any more than the goalkeeper for AUC Milan is the same as the Renaissance prince, just because they both get called Lorenzo the Magnificent. Yeah, sports analogies, I know. It only took me half an hour of googling to find that one. So, there's a series of additions to the information in the original sources. And sometimes these additions are impossible. They contain details that just can't possibly be true. But generally not the case, though. Many of these additions, they might be true. For all we know, there really was a King Bapa. But when you weave all of these additions together, you get something quite different. It was a colonial historian who did the best job of weaving them together. He recorded some of the local oral traditions of the time. He put them together with evidence from the texts and from the inscriptions and the coins. And then, like 
a historical Sherlock Holmes, a hundred years too early, he deduced what must have happened. And here's the story. The kings of Vallabi were descendants of Rama, and so ultimately from the sun. But the dynasty was under attack from outsiders, and eventually it gave way. And the barbarians who came in killed the royal family, everyone, including Prince Shaladitya. But his wife? His wife managed to escape the barbarians, and she fled, hiding in the mountains. And there she gave birth to the prince's son in a cave. And after she'd given birth, she built a funeral pyre for her husband. She gave the newborn child to a Brahmin lady to look after, and then the queen climbed on the pyre, burning herself to death. The Brahmin lady, this newborn in her hands, gave it a name, Cave Guha, and she raised the baby as her own, raising him well, actually, because such was his character that he became immensely popular. And the local tribesfolk, the Pills, they elected him as their king, even though he was an outsider to them, a demonstration of how powerful he was, of his right to rule. And so Guha founded the dynasty which was to be named after him. That's the colonialist story. It's frankly a lovely bit of work, right? taking all those hints from those different editions that we talked about, each of which might have been true, and weaving them together into something entirely more preposterous than the sum of its parts, a, a tapestry of nonsense. So there it is, the story of how a legend was built. I hope you enjoyed it. Last week we did a bit of deconstructing a myth, taking it apart, but this week I thought we'd run it in reverse, see how a myth is built up. It seems to give a better picture about where ideas come from and what we should be so sceptical of and what we can have confidence in. And anyway, some of those stories were just too good to miss. Back to our man, King Bhoja. When King Bhoja had come to the throne... He had fought against the enemies of his fathers. In the east, the Palas, and in the south, the Rashtrakutas. And King Boja had gone out pretty boldly against both of them. He was a much smaller power than them at this point, and he had been rather predictably overpowered by both of them and beaten back. But Boja regathered himself. He started building close ties with other kings of small lands. Kings like the Kalachuris, who we met last week, and kings like the Guhilas, who we, we just met, working with, with a harsher Raja, who is a, a Guhila king a bit older than himself, and with Guhila, uh, harsher Raja's son, Guhila named after the supposed founder. And there were plenty of other small kings that Boja probably tied himself to as well. The, the Guhilas and the Kalachuris, we know about them because later on their dynasties became a big deal. But there'll be plenty of, of small kings from dynasties which never made it onto the big stage, which faded from the attention of history altogether, and Boja would have found alliances with them. In fact, Boja seems to have been very good at this. So much so that even Boja's enemies describe him as surrounded by crowds of noble kinsmen. Boja seems to have had a, a certain charm about him that, that drew people to him. And soon enough, Boja had a sizable force at his disposal. 
And then Boja started to see opportunities start to open up. Boja had been quite a young guy when he came to the throne. Younger than his ancestral enemy to the south, the Rashtrakuta enemy. Certainly younger than his ancestral enemy to the east, the Parler Emperor. And as the decades passed, that difference in ages started to tell. The first opportunity came in the east. The Parler Emperor had controlled the east and, and in fact most of North India with a sure hand. This is Deva Parler. He was experienced. He'd lost some battles early on, but he'd won more than he lost. And now he had the resources of an empire at his disposal, including the military might. He had the elephant forests for the best elephants. He had access to the war horses in the north. He had thousands and thousands of infantry ready to march at his command. And he ran his empire superbly well. He kept a powerful grip on North India for 40 years. But... About 11 years or so into Bhoja's reign, the Pala Emperor died. He passed on the Pala Empire to his son, a man so insignificant that historians didn't even believe in him until fairly recently. He ruled maybe 12 years, and then he was replaced by the old emperor's cousin. And the cousin, he was something different. He wasn't insignificant exactly. It's not so much that he left no record of his heroic imperial deeds for history to remember. It's that he left a positive record of his complete lack of heroic imperial deeds. He spent a lot of his time at sacrifices organised by his ministers, having holy water poured onto his head. That sort of thing. He ruled for all of a year before he worked out that this emperor thing, it's not for me. So he retired to spend his time as a religious mendicant, and he left the empire to his son. The son followed the father closely, at least in terms of his attitude towards life. He was equally religiously inclined, though there was a bit of a different spin to it. The rest of the family, the Pala family this is, they were devoted Buddhists. But this latest emperor, Narayana Pala, his name was He was devoted to Shiva. He was a Shaivite. Though this change probably didn't affect too much in the real world. After all, by this time it was widely believed that Buddha was just another avatar of Vishnu. So Narayanapala was still interested in supporting the Buddhist monasteries as the guys who had come before him were. And he made donations to Vishnu and his Narasimha and Buddha incarnations as well as being interested in sponsoring Shaivism. But what the new emperor most certainly wasn't interested in was fighting. So this was Boja's chance. He gathered up his subordinate kings. The Guhilas were there, maybe not old King Harsharaja, maybe his son Guhila II. The Kalachuris were there too, as a prince with a a long name you you won't hear again, so I'm not going to give it and a whole host of, of other minor kings all gathered together and invaded the Pala Empire, throwing the new emperor out, invading into Bengal, into the heartlands of the Palas, almost wiping out the Pala Empire altogether. Boja had victory over his ancestral enemy. A few years later, another opportunity opened out to the south. 
There, beyond the line of mountains which separates North India from South, the Rashtrakuta Empire had lurked, and twice they had crossed the mountains, twice they had robbed Boja's predecessors of victory. And Boja himself had been defeated by them when he had tried to invade earlier. But Boja had already got a bit lucky, luckier anyway than his predecessors. So the current Rashtrakuta Emperor, he was far too busy to make any expedition up north to come and bother the Pratiharas again. He was fighting a sustained civil war, a bitter fight. He very almost lost his southern empire, though he regained it again, well before his death. But eventually, his death had come, and the throne passed to his son, Krishna II. A new emperor, a young one. And when the news reached Bhoja, Bhoja was no longer a young man. He'd been ruling now for around 40, 41 years, and Bhoja was full of experience, four decades of experience being emperor. Now the tables had turned. It paid to be younger than your enemies. Bhoja saw the opportunity and again summoned his subordinate kings and again invaded over the mountains into the south, pushing the Rashtrakuta enemy all the way to the Narmada River and beyond. So Boja seems to have played a masterful game. Waiting, building up ties, until launching out and getting the two old enemies of his family on the run. And now, now he was ruling supreme. So, what did Boja win when he beat his enemies? Well, he won the imperial city, Kanauj, Kanyakubja. The city which his forefathers had worked so hard to get, though they'd never quite had the chance to cross the moat and to go into its rooms. Well, now the imperial city was Boja's. You know, back when the Palas had controlled North India, they'd kind of ruled the city, but they hadn't made it their capital. They hadn't made it the seat of the empire, but Boja did. He made it the centre of an empire once again, and so it would stay for a hundred years. And Boja controlled most of North India. To the extreme north, he sent his subordinates, the Guhilas. They conquered those lands, and they presented Boja with the all-important war horses for his army, which came only from the northern kings. Over in the west, he swept away the last remnants of the Rashtrakuta Empire. They'd been clinging on in what's now Gujarat, including the famous Kaira district. Kaira is where Amul comes from. Amul is this, this cooperative in modern-day India, which gives... And it's something between you know, a quarter and a half of India's packed butter, milk and cheese. So these are rich lands. He didn't hold all that he took, though. In particular, the Pratihara emperor fought back, pushed back Boja over the Narmada River, taking back even parts of Gujarat, even into Malwa, beating Boja there in his own territory, according to Pratihara records at least. But these setbacks, they didn't prevent Boja building up an empire. And soon he was on a construction craze. Boja was building temps, uh, temples at, at, at Gwalia and, and also building things near the imperial city. Boja, in fact, built an entirely new city near the imperial city named after him, Bojapura. 
Whether it was actually an extension of the old city or, or a small city nearby, it's unclear. But in the inscription that we have about it, it's said to have been a harem city, a city for his women, to increase the, the fame and merit of his queens, the inscription says. It was constructed in, in Vishnu's name. It's also said that Boja built the famous rectangular temple within the Gwalior fort, though actually that's not true. This is one of those rare cases where we got the date too late. The, the rectangular temple was actually built in Yashovarman's time, the emperor who was around near the beginning of this series. But anyway, Boja went on a, a construction craze, building up his empire. And why not? Finally, he had the empire secure at long last. Boja ruled another few years after that. By the time he had died, he had taken a small kingdom. He defeated all of the enemies that his forefathers never could, and he had founded an empire. He ruled for 46 years, and by the standard of kings at least, he's often thought to be the most impressive ruler of his line. There's a real frustration with Bodhi. He's this tremendous character from the time, but we only get hints of the character. It feels like he's always in the next room. We never quite meet him. But it's hard not to think that he would have been mighty pleased with what he had achieved. Every week we read something from the original sources. This week, there are just too many important things to read. It's tempted, actually, to read two different things. Go on, let's give in to temptation. So, first off, they're going to read from a, a pillar that's in Bengal. It's got an inscription on it from the time of that Pala emperor who was beaten by Boja. It's a wonderful inscription because it's not really about the emperor. It's about the emperor's advisors. It gives us the family history of the advisors tracing them through as each member of the family served a corresponding parlor emperor, praising the members of the family almost as if they were kings themselves. There's a lot of pride in this document. It goes through from Gaga and his ancestry who served Dharmapala, and on through the descendants of Gaga as they served Dharmapala and then his son Devapala. It even describes the wife of each of these advisors who gave birth to the next generation. But we're going to join the document halfway through, because actually we've, we've heard the story of the earlier ministers. We're going to join it when the family line of advisors has reached Kedara Mishra. And it goes like this. From them, the parents, took his birth the illustrious Kedara Mishra, filling the circle of the quarters with the flames of abundant sacrificial fires, radiant with the presence of the gods, of irresistible great might, of a preeminence in every branch of knowledge matured from within as brilliant as glowing gold. He, like unto Guha, delighted the minds of gods and men by his deeds. Pouring forth, even as a boy, the oceans of the four Vedas which he had drunk at a single draught, he laughed at Augustia's proficiency. Attending to his wise counsel, the Lord of Gauda, that's the Palar Emperor, long ruled the sea-girt earth, having eradicated the race of the Utkalas, humbled the prides of the Hunas, and scattered the conceit of the rulers of Dravida 
and Gujara, that's the Rashtrakutas and the Pratiharas. He allowed supplicants to take freely away his riches. His mind made no distinction between friend and foe. He was both afraid and ashamed to fall into the ocean of worldly existence, and having crushed the attachment to the pleasures of this life, he took delight in the supreme abode. At the sacrifices of him, the image of Brihaspati, the illustrious prince Shurapala, having destroyed the force of his enemies, often attended of his own accord, like Indra himself, the destroyer of the demon Vala. And ever desirous of the welfare of the earth, girt by several oceans, he there with bent head received the pure water, his soul being bathed in the water of faith. His wife, that's the wife of the advisor, was Vavva, born at Devagrama, unlike the fickle Lakshmi and the childless Sati. As Devaki gave birth to Purushottama, the adopted son of Yashoda, Lakshmi's husband, who delighted the cowherd, so she bore to him a son, famous and compassionate, who was a lord of fortune and caused pleasure to the king, being the most excellent of men. He, Rama, called Gurava Mishra, the illustrious, born in Jamadagni's race and conversant with the constellations which bow good fortune, was like another Rama Jamadagni, to whom the frithing Kshatriya order caused anxious thought. And since the illustrious prince Narayanapala, it's the, the soon-to-be emperor of the Palas, desirous of victory, skillful in discerning excellent qualities, held him in high esteem. What needeth there is further eulogy. The spread of holiness that he, of no mean intelligence and of immeasurable fame, possessed great power of speech, knowledge of traditional law and profound skill in politics, that he belonged to a family which had acquired boundless luster by searching after the meaning of the Vedas, that he was eager to celebrate the virtues of great men and was well versed in astronomy. In him, who was possessed of good fortune, as well as a master of speech, Lakshmi and Saraswati resided both together having forsaken, as it were, their natural enmity and joining in friendship. In the assemblies of the learned, he at once confounded the pride of self-conceited opponents by his speeches, to which the constant study of the Shastras imparted deep meaning, just as, possessed of boundless wealth and valour, he did in battle the conceit of bravery of enemies. He never uttered words gratifying to the ear of which fruit became not at once apparent. Nor did he ever bestow a gift which the suppliant, having received, went to another more bountiful donor. This pious-minded man expounded the Vedas in books of moral tales, which excited a thrill of joy and showed that he was born of Almiki of the Kali Age. Being a river of heaven which does not proceed to the ocean, something, 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 his pellucid and profound language both delights and purifies. I don't know what pellucid means either. To his ancestors and to him people were wont to resort, considering that in them Brahman himself had first become a father, and that the same Brahman in him had again become their offspring. He has placed Taksha, the foe of serpents and dear friend of Harry, here on top of this pillar, the something-something-something beauty of which, like that of his own person, attracts the eyes of people, which, like his own aspiration, rises to an unparalleled height and is firm like his affection and which is clearly, as it were, a stake planted in the breast of the Kali Age. Having roamed to the furthest ends of the world, and hence descended to the bottom of the lower regions, his spotless fame has risen here in the guise of this Garuda with a serpent in his mouth. This eulogy was incised by the artisan Vishnubhadra.
great inscription. I love the use of the pillar as a metaphor. I love that firm as his own affection. Um, And also, I, I take back what I said. These praises aren't the praises for kings, but they're equally bombastic. They've got this profound knowledge of the Vedas, so much so that he tells his own stories, giving out the moral message of the Vedas, and everyone crowds round to hear. Just wonderful stuff, exceptional stuff. Well worth reading the whole thing. I've read about half of it there. Have you got patience for one more? Just a few verses, I promise. Here it is. This is the victorious Bhoja, boasting about his victories over the Palas. So the other side of the, of the story. He's saying that Lakshmi, the goddess of fortune, has left the Palas and now lives with Bhoja. And the bit we read, it starts with Bhoja's father, but it gets to Bhoja pretty quickly. Bhoja's original name, you might remember, was Mihira. Bhoja just means son. The passage goes... Like this. A pure soul, averse from the world, he obtained a son by name Mihira, by the favour of the son propitiated by mysterious rites in order to dispose of the lordship over his subjects. The lord, who ruled over many kings and, and after having overcome them and being therefore known as Bhoja, shone more gloriously than Augustia, who merely checked the rise of a single kin. King here and mountain are the same word in Sanskrit, so this is a a pun. And Augustia's a a sage who dealt with the Vindhya mountain. Puns are better when you don't explain them. I'll I'll carry on. Boja shone more gloriously than Augustia, who merely checked the rise of a single mountain Vindhya through favour and not by his own prowess. Famous, unperturbed, adept in removing the evils of the world, embraced by Lakshmi but not soiled by the stain of arrogance, he was affectionate towards the meritorious and an asylum of good and pleasant words. Does he or Rama stand foremost when Brahma counts his own creation? The other Lakshmi, the source of the fame of Dharma's son, Devapala, who was cast out of the ocean of hostile forces, churned by the Kula mountains in the form of the kings of Boja's own race, who is married by an offering as an oblation of fried grains, which were destroyed enemies in the fire of his valour, and who was protected by his superior accomplishments, mild, uncommon and pure like nectar, became a fit remarried bride of that king. In order to extend the duration of his life beyond all measure, the ascetics, on account of the protection afforded to them, the preceptors out of affection, the servants out of devotion, the multitude of foes out of policy, and mankind in general, for the sake of its livelihood, made their respective services, treasures, subservient to him, who is worthy, a worthy recipient as the creator himself. It is strange that the meritorious deeds of honest men, whose intellect was undefiled, went to increase the prosperity of this king, who was the conqueror of Kali and the lord of fame. Of him who had burnt the powerful hostile races by the fire of his anger and guarded the oceans by his valour, the absence of greed for further conquest shone, indeed, even as the satiety of a man who had drunk a large quantity of water. Fame 
resulting from the unbounding energy of that lord of the world, was unto him even as a consort, and like a flame, issuing out of a flood of luxuriant luster, returned after conquering the sun. It's a wonder that she crossed the oceans. Splendid, articulate, resonant stuff. Love it. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. If you have been enjoying the podcast, please consider donating to my wife's charity, the Snail Situ Patrick Memorial Fund. There's details on the website, which is historyofindiapodcast.in, new address. Next week, we're going to try and get a little bit closer to Borja the person rather than Borja the emperor. And we're also going to spend some time getting to know what it was like to live in his new empire. Until then, have a great week. Take care.